Turn with me to Hosea. Hosea chapter 7. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 3 of chapter 3. We'll, we'll look through the end of chapter 8 as this message, it's a continual message of Hosea that has uh, this started back in chapter 5. Uh, but it runs right on, and we'll we'll finish it up when I get back from Peru, Lord willing. It ends in the eleventh chapter, but uh, this will be plenty, plenty for us to consider here tonight. Hosea chapter seven, beginning in verse three. Hosea 7, beginning in verse 3. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes, by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like an heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go... I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Set the trumpets to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Has Israel spurned the good? The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. 
How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing corn has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept it. It does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour her strongholds. May the Lord bless his word for our good here tonight. Father, thank you so much. These are hard words for us. Not because of the difficulty of the the words themselves or the syntax of the sentences. But because they speak warnings against us. Because we, we look so much like Israel and Judah. Father, it's been almost 3,000 years since these words were written about your people of old, and yet we seem not to learn lessons. Pray now that you might work these lessons into our hearts, that we might, we might flee from the iniquity that is so common to us all and so much like these people of old. We pray that the Lord Jesus would become more dear to us in this hour. That genuine repentance would be granted to us. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've already heard God's rebuke Israel. We looked at that last week. And I told you a few weeks ago, just hang on because this is going to go on for quite a while. And uh, when, when we read passages like this, we shouldn't just scurry through them. We should take our time because it's obvious the Lord wants us to, to hear these things. Children, you need to hear often that you're sinners and that you need a Savior. We adults need to hear that often as well. We need to be reminded that we don't just need a sent a savior 
once. And then that's going to take care of when we die. We need to be reminded that we need a Savior every day. Every day when we wake up, we need Jesus Christ fresh and new. Does that mean we're justified over and over again? No, justification is a one-time event. God declares it. But we need to be sanctified. That's part of the salvation process that God has put us in. And that means looking to the fact that we are continually in need of the same grace, the same Jesus Christ that we were five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, for some of us, a hundred and ten years ago. We need the same Jesus every day. Passages like this remind us, not just individually, but as a church. As a church, we need to be reminded often that we're sinners, that we need to repent. It's one of the purposes of the morning corporate confession of sin is to remind us as a church that we need to confess our sins together. So, there's much chastisement from the Lord here. He points out their sins over and over. It becomes a little redundant at points, it seems, but it's, it's good for us because we don't listen closely and we don't learn quickly. So this is easy tonight. There's two, two points. The remainder of chapter 7, as we've, as we've divided it here, verses 3 through 16, and then chapter 8. And the first one is, God accuses his people of decadence. They're living a decadent life. Corruption is everywhere. In verses 3 through 7, it's in, the, it's in every area of public life. By their evil, they make the king glad. And the princes, by their treachery, they're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven. That Hosea Gomer story is just being played out here. Israel is Gomer. She's committing adultery. Their passions are like a heated oven, the Lord says. Just smoldering. It's always there. They never think of anything other than this. This this oven simile that's used here. Notice... It's like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. In other words, I don't know if any of you have ever burned wood or you burn coal. I grew up on a coal-burning fireplace uh, down in North Alabama. We didn't have to use it very often. It usually had, uh, the fireplace usually had this pretty little decorative insert in it that my mama kept in there to keep it from looking like a fireplace open and keep the, the draft from pulling the hot air out and the cool air staying in. But then occasionally we'd pull it out and pile the coal in there. And the last thing at night, dad or 
he'd send one of us boys out to get a couple of buckets of coal and we would we would bank the coal up so that it would be good and hot and so when we went to bed it would it would burn through the night and we wouldn't have to stir it or fool with it it would be just right and that's the image here of what's going on but it's in a it's in a baker's shop the kneading of the dough lets us know that the baker has ceased to stir the fire it's going to stay just like that through the night but something's going to happen to it in a moment but we'll look at that in a moment but that's exactly what's going on here Derek Kidner says the lurid scene is the culmination of the previous section now we penetrate the palace to find the king and his courtiers not only doing nothing to stem the tide of evil, which is what the king is supposed to do. Think Romans 13, the civil magistrate is given for good for the people. Supposed to, supposed to reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. And yet in this case, the civil magistrate, the king, is not only he's not only doing nothing to stem the tide of evil, but he's actually reveling in it. He's he's titillated by it, Kidner says, relishing the previously graft and trickery and letting their lust take over. Instead of dignity in the highest office, there's corruption in morals. And then it moves this 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 oven, did you notice? It moves from being this banked up, smoldering coals to it gets air. Verse 6, for with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. So it goes from bad to worse. Now they're feeding the fire. It's not just life as normal. Uh, the imagery here is that it's, it's getting worse. All of them, verse 7 says, all of them are hot as an oven. Talking about the passions, the corrupt morals. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. In other words, the king has played along with this. He's condoned this to the point that the evil has overwhelmed him overtaken him there's no there's just chaos in the land he's lost all control I'll tell you something young folks you play with fire and it will burn you you see what's going on here with the king and his and his princes they think as long as we let the people have their way keep them happy, everything will be okay with us. But eventually, they didn't care about the king and the princess. And you may have friends, young folks, and you'll think, well, as long as I go along with them, they'll, they'll, they'll treat me okay. But they won't. Just because you go along with them 
doesn't guarantee that they're going to be your friends or that they're going to treat you okay. They'll be like the fire that now is out of control because the king just played with it and pandered it and now it's out of control and the kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength. It's remarkable. Now he says, in this hot oven, the same hot oven, it's burning. It's not heating anymore. It's burning. Now some of you are, some of you, women and maybe some of you men bake and you know that you want a good even temperature in your oven when you're baking right because you want those biscuits to be nice and brown on top and nice and brown on bottom but you don't want them burned on the bottom or burned on the top well the oven is so hot it's so out of control Oh, by the way, I like to use charcoal. And you know that you let your charcoal burn down. Because if you don't, first of all, the meat's going to smell like charcoal and lighter fluid. If you don't let it burn down. But it's also going to be burning so hot initially that only the bottom's going to get burned and nothing else will cook. That's what's going on here. Another image of that. And the whole point is the people are burning, get, or the people are being burned and they're useless like burned bread. Do you, you, you see that? Ephraim is like a cake not turned. The New American Standard says it's like a a, a, a round loaf burned on the bottom and not cooked through. Sometimes you're really hungry. You can tell what I'm thinking about right now. Biscuits. Because I'm about to mention them again. You're really hungry. You put those biscuits in the oven and you just can't wait. And the first little slight hint of browning on the top, you pull them out and you open them. To put the butter in there, you got to butter your biscuits. And you put the butter in there, and it's just dough. It's just gooey. And I'm going to tell you, folks, there's not a thing you can do with that. It's done then. It's, it's useless. Ephraim's a cake, not turned. Just the bottom of it cooked. And so the middle of it was just useless. It's inedible. This whole... From here, 8 through 16, is pregnant. This imagery is pregnant. Half-baked loaf of bread, unedible. And it's because they mix themselves with peoples. In other words, they're not, they're not, they're not associating with godly people. Their company, they're keeping bad company. What does Paul tell us? Bad company corrupts good Morals, good character. And it makes you 
like lukewarm water which the Lord, we're told in Revelation, will spew out of his mouth. Strangers devour Ephraim's strength. He knows it not. He doesn't even realize what's happening to him. Sin is subtle. You start associating with sinners and you'll start being just like them and you won't even realize it. Now listen, when I say things like that, you do understand that we're supposed to be in this world proclaiming the goodness of God and the wonders of Jesus Christ without being part of this world. So when I say, when we associate with sinners, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to. I'm saying we're supposed to associate with them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of his gospel. Not in the sense of being like them. They're being like them. They've mixed themselves with the peoples. They've intermingled. They've intermarried with the other nations. And so they've become such that they don't even recognize that their strength, their, the fact that they are God's people, that has been zapped from them. They don't, and they don't even know it. They would still call themselves Christians. They would still call themselves God's people. And yet they're not. They're like the people that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. On that last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this? And Jesus says, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's, that's these people right here. And that can be people in every generation. It is people in every generation. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. I know my beard is gray, y'all. I know my hair is gray. I'm not one of those silly old men that looks in the mirror and sees myself at age 35. Bradley Clapp may do that, but I don't. There's a story behind that one, but I'll, that's for another time. But there are people who live like that, don't they? We live in an age of, we were talking about this earlier, we met with, by the way, the Anders. Brian and Danielle are now officially members of this, this congregation. They took their vows earlier to, uh, this, to the elders, and we're so glad to have them. But we're talking about this. We live in an age of what I call extended adolescence. That is that we've got, we've got young folks that grow up, and they live with, in their family, in the family home for years and years and years. They never really grow up. They never go on and, and become adults. And the Proverbs tell us that we as parents are supposed to be preparing them all through life and launching them out into this world as arrows. God never intended for children to stay in the home forever and ever. I heard Dave Ramsey, it was interesting I, I, how this worked together. God's interest, very interesting that way, isn't he? His providences, uh, as, as I drove home from church this afternoon from the morning service, uh, the uh, Joy 620 I'd been listening to as I drove here this morning, it's on the radio. And, uh, and so the fellow who's talking Dave Ramsey 
He said, here, it was clear, very plain, our children, we're paying for your college, don't come back. Not because we didn't love them, Ramsey said, but because that's not God's design. They now are to be moms and dads and to raise families and to grow up godly seed. But we live in an age of extended adolescence. People stay kids even after they, if they do move out and they do become husbands and wives, they still act like children. I don't know all the reasons for that in our culture today, but I know it's the truth. They grow up and they, they, they have gray hairs and they don't even know it. They still think they're kids. They still act like kids. They still do childish things. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he said, when I was a child, I acted like a child. But now that I'm not a child, I don't act like a child anymore. I act like a grown man. They didn't recognize it. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. The whole world sees it. Here's the interesting thing. God's people are acting like the world. The world recognizes it and they don't recognize it in themselves. Do you know how silly the world thinks we are when we try to do things like they do things? And we don't even realize they recognize that we're acting silly. Ephraim's like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, well, God says, here's what I'm going to do. You go flitting about here and there like a dove. You ever? We have bird feeders. Any of y'all have bird feeders? Dove, love to come in and feed off the ground under the feeders. I don't know if you have them, we have them. We've had, we've had a whole flock of dove this winter. Usually it's just one or you know, just a couple, but this year we've had just, I've walked out the door and six or eight will just fly up in my face. And they don't know what they're doing. They don't know which way to go. They don't seem to have any sense whatsoever. That's the imagery here. Now, what is it about Israel that's like a dove? Well, they're just going over to Israel. They're going to Egypt. They're going here. They're going there. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spread a net over them and bring them down like birds of the heaven. Now, first of all, I don't know when you read this earlier with me, if you thought that's strange imagery. Uh, you just, just think about it, though. Only God could do what God just said he was going to do. Because to get a net over a bunch of birds in flight, you'd have to do it from above. You couldn't do it from down here. God's making a statement here. I'm up here. You're down there. I'm in control. 
I'll bring them down like birds of the heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. In other words, God says, I'm not going to do anything to you I haven't told you I'm going to do. My word is replete with what happens when you sin against me. Parents have this happen sometimes. Children misbehave and the parents haven't made it clear what the punishment for the misbehavior would be. And they begin to discipline them. They begin to dish out the punishment. And they say, the children are like, That's, I, I didn't know you were going to do that. And all of a sudden, they're confused. God's saying, there's no reason for you to be confused about this. I've told you what I will do if you don't obey me. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves. They, reb they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, the Lord says, I've done everything. I've taught them all they need to know. I've disciplined them. I've, I've trained them up. And yet they devise evil against me. They return. And when they return, this is the repentance. There's an apparent repentance. They're returning. You know, the, the whole thing back up there, they've strayed. Uh, I would redeem them. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they well upon their beds. It sounds like repentance, but it's not really repentance. They turn but they don't turn to come to me. They turn, but not upward, verse 16 says. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. They're going to exile. Egypt's used here in the exile sense. Not that they went to Egypt again. It's referring them back. Just like you went into exile in Egypt. So you're going to go into exile again. This time it's going to be Assyria. And then of course Babylon comes later on to take Judah. They grow weak. They're senseless. They're unteachable. They're repentant. This is a, a prayer that Derek Kidner had picked up from someone that he published at the end of his commentary on this chapter. And it's a good prayer. We're going to pray it together in just a few minutes, but listen to it. O oh Lord, grant us grace never to parley with temptation, never to tamper with conscience, never to spare the right hand, right eye or hand or foot that is a snare to us, never to lose our souls. Though in exchanged, we should gain the world. Actually, that's probably just a good place to end. And we'll begin with chapter 8 next time when I get back from Peru, Lord willing. I hope you noticed in that prayer, O oh Lord, grant us grace never to parley with temptation. We do that, don't we? We flirt with temptation. Never to tamper with conscience. Our conscience 
is pricked, their conscience is troubled, but we, we, we rationalize it. And we try to adjust our conscience. We try to teach our conscience better. Never to spare the right hand or a hand, a right eye or hand or foot that's a snare to us. In other words, we don't put off. We don't put on the righteous. We don't put off that which is wrong. Though in exchange we should gain the world. See, this prayer is just taken from our Lord. This passage is a good occasion for it, but remember the words of the Lord. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? These people called by the name of the Lord some 800 years before Christ they know what's right and yet they're so allured by the things of this world they love the passions of this world hot as an oven that they've grown senseless they've grown they don't even see themselves as they really are that's what sin does to us and then when they realize things are not that good they cry out to the lord but it's qualified they don't turn upward they just turn well, maybe if I do it this way, maybe if I do it that way, not maybe if I do it the Lord's way, maybe if I run to the Lord. It's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Because we face the same temptations, maybe even more so now than they did. When you think about television and the internet, how available Lurid, as Kidner says, how, how available lurid things are to our senses. And you don't even have to look for it. It'll find you. I'm amazed. So the question is, do we enjoy living like this? Do we enjoy having presidents and senators who, who commend us in our sins? Do we, do we love living a life that, that ends up deadening our senses to where we don't even realize who we are or what we're doing? That we become a proud people. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord. We've become so proud that we become silly, like dove. Well, if so, the answer is we will fall by the sword 
because of the insolence of our tongues. But it doesn't have to be that way, obviously. The Lord, as I said way back, all these warnings are to an ultimate end. And it's not judgment. God's whole purpose of warning his people over and over is what? To bring them to repentance. To restore them as his people who loves them and does for them. So hopefully we'll find ourselves tonight warned and we'll turn. You say, well, but, you know, compared to, remember what I've said, let's don't get into the comparative analysis. It doesn't matter that we may not be as bad as Israel was. All we have to be is bad in one thing. And that means we're bad in all of it. They're bad in all of it. I'll grant you that. This is really bad. When, when you are compared over and over to a prostitute, you're breaking all ten. But let's remember, you don't have to break all ten to break all ten. You only have to break one to break all ten. So let's don't get into this comparing ourselves to Israel. We as a church simply need this. We need to know that we need to repent, and we need to repent often. And when we repent, we will repent upward, not sideways. If you look in the margin of your Bible, probably what it says down there, I only checked a couple, including the one I'm, I'm reading from, but in the margin, when it says... Uh, in verse 16, they return, but not upward. If you have the marginal notes, it says, or to the most high. You return, but not to me, God's saying. So let's return to the Lord. Commit ourselves to return to the Lord for every little sin. And you see, if we, if we do that every day, then they won't add up. Our sins won't pile up on us. That's when sins get out of hand. It's when they've just compounded and piled up and we don't know what to do. Well, if that's your case here tonight, they've compounded. You have to do the same thing you do if there's just one of them, and that is turn to the Lord and ask forgiveness. That's the answer, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this, your passage of scripture to us tonight. We ask you to bless us as we've heard it and as we've seen and as we go out. May we go out more like our Savior with our eyes turned to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.